0: Welcome to the official podcast for the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction. Here you will find podcasts highlighting clinically relevant topics, ongoing SUFU initiatives, SUFU member highlights, and much, much more.
1: All right, welcome. We'd like to take this opportunity to start this session. This session is going to be optimization of advanced care practitioners within practices. I'm Michael Kennelly, I'm at Carolina's Medical Center. I've had the luxury to actually working with a lot of our colleagues within the APP world. Um, I've had probably about 12 APPs in my career. Currently in our practice we have roughly 20 APPs, 16 uh, physician providers. And so we realize that within at least the world that we do within urology, it's a really integral relationship that's really needed within that sort of bonding together. And so this session, what we want to do is really try to hit some of the highlights, hopefully allow you know, the audience to have some questions specifically to how can you optimize it? Because the world within which we live is different. With the new advent of telemedicine starting to come in, managing patients from afar, kind of how can we sort of survive this environment? So we're fortunate to have three good faculty that is here. We have Dr. Dillon from Houston, Texas. We have Stu Reynolds from Vanderbilt. And we also have Shelly, who's also at Vanderbilt, the, the co team founder with Dr. Reynolds, kind of giving the full perspective of how and what and why we can do. So please feel free to uh, get questions. We'll have time at the end to go over. But the first part, we're going to talk about kind of the A through Z, what is it for APPs. We'll then talk about the scope of practice that's out there. And then we're also going to get sort of the the real life kind of activity from the APP perspective. You know, what are they seeing? And how can the teams really be the best that they can be? So we'll start it off right now actually with uh, Benjamin Dillon. And given the, the A through Z.
2: Um, thank you very much. I'll just give you a little bit of background about my practice. I kind of represent a little bit of the private practice side. I am uh, employed at a multi-specialty group in Houston. Um, we have about 600 physicians. But what I'm going to talk about with the relationship to um, APPs in, in urology can be applied to any practice of, of any size. Um, so the first thing um, is we're going to talk about recruitment, and I think from, from my perspective, I think one of the most important things before you do anything is kind of define the job description of what you are looking for in an APP for your personal practice. Um, and once you have a good idea of, of what you want and how you're going to utilize it, I, I, you obviously post the job. and. There are a whole host of areas where you can uh, put your job postings. We happen to use an integrated uh, website for physicians and APPs where they can search um, jobs available. After we get some hits on that, we'll have our physician recruiter um, speak to the APP about what they're looking for, and then they'll usually get a screen either by phone or by Zoom from the chief of the department to kind of, again, just make sure our goals align before we start to go forward with the in-person interview process. Once they pass that screening, we then bring them in for a formal interview and a site visit. Um, And I think that's important because they understand really what the facility looks like. Um, They'll meet the people within the group and then meet with key medical leadership uh, about kind of the philosophy of, of what we do. Um, and then we have a pretty formal process where we extend offers to our, our, our providers, both physicians and APCs, um, and that means twice a month. Um, and the job postings are really based on the need, as I said, um, and what we have a, a little loose rule of thumb at Kelsey that we expect an APP to increase a provider's practice by at least 20 to 30%. So when they have that utilization of their schedule around the 80 to 90th percentile, that's when we'll generally start to say, I think it's time to add an APP to your practice. So after all that, um, we extend a formal interview, and they come on board. Every provider at Kelsey goes through a kind of standard new provider orientation. And with that, that orientation, we talk about the goals of the organization, um, we are a value-based care organization to make sure that they understand what that means. Then every department handles their onboarding a little differently. We've developed, a, I guess, a mini-fellowship um, within Kelsey on how we work with our APPs. So they start, right now we have um, five APPs for eight urologists. We just actually extended a sixth offer today. Um, and this new new APP will come on board and he'll spend one week with every one of our APCs. Um, we happen to have all PAs in our department, um, not by choice, other than that's just who, who applied. We are agnostic to NPs or, or PAs. Um, and they will spend one week. We generally match up each APP with a provider. So in that week with that APC, they'll learn how to work with that specific provider as well. and that, that, those five weeks are focused on really the core general urology principles. And as they go through, they learn about the different variances and all of our little practice patterns, pick up some sp- subspecialty stuff. Um, and then you, we find usually after about five weeks, they're ready to be released into practice. Once they get released into practice, the next step is how do we integrate them into our practice? And usually for the first week or two that – they're out of their orientation. They will just shadow um, the, the provider that they're with. Then we will open their schedule. And we do things um, a little differently than what I think some other practices do around the country. Our, our APCs actually don't go to the operating room or hospital with us. So they are purely office-based. And what we do, we all have two days of surgery a week and three days of, of, of clinic. So when we are in clinic, we will have our schedule and they will run a truncated parallel schedule to us. And part of the reason why we do that is we put somewhat, um, I'd say lower value visits, but not lower important visits on the PA schedule. What that does is that frees up a slot for us to have a new patient per potential surgical discussion on our schedules. Um, On days that we are in the operating room, our APCs have their own schedule. And they see new patients. They see post-ops, pre-ops. They do procedures, whether it be pessary fittings, um, testapel, uh, PTNS, some therapeutic cystoscopy. Um, and they will see their, their whole schedule. Um, so once they're ready, we start them on 30-minute time slots. When they uh, feel proficient, they'll go on to 15 or 20-minute time slots, depending on the individual. And then we'll start, start to gradually introduce uh, some procedures into their practice. We are an epic shop, so we, we rely on our APCs to help us with our in-basket. It's very important to note that we don't ask our APCs to do our in-basket. It is a teamed effort and is the expectation that the provider will manage the in-basket along with the APC. So it's really a co-management because they're also going to develop their own in-basket as they start to build their practice as well. And then during the first year, we do a monthly check-in where we'll sit down myself um, and my, my, my co-chief will sit down and really just review how they're doing month by month, where they need to improve. Um, and then every quarter we do a variable compensation where their, their uh, performance gets reviewed with um, our CEO and uh, medical leadership. Billing is kind of straightforward for us. Um, we, when they are with us and seeing our patients, uh, we bill. Um, If they're on their own um, and there's no change in the plan, they will bill under the provider's name as long as we are in clinic with them. So if my PA, if Kristen, is seeing a very simple OAB follow-up and the patient's doing well and she just refills the medication, she will actually bill under my name. If it's a new patient um, that she's seeing and I'm not in clinic, um, she will bill no supervision uh, when she's alone. And then compensation, that's always a big one. Um, you know, again, we'll talk about this as the other uh, presenters speak, but an APC can be an invaluable part of your practice, and I think they should be rewarded to that effect. We have a very transparent payment model at Kelsey Siebold. We are a uh, market survey-based organization. We use uh, Sullivan-Cotter, and all of our procedural-based APCs have a range of salaries, so they're tiered. Um, and we start them at Tier 1 on their anniversary, they go up to Tier 2 and so on and so forth. We also have a uh, rolling four-quarter variable compensation where our APCs get um, compensation based on the number of visits they see and not necessarily RVUs. And that's really just because the survey data on RVUs for APCs is not terribly robust and, and, and reliable. Then every year they get a raise at their anniversary, as I mentioned, then they get the standard benefits for the organization, which are some CME dollars, CME time off in addition to vacation time, and then our 401k matching plan. Um, And that's kind of how we integrate them in Houston. It's good to see. So once again, that's coming from a
1: a private practice perspective. A couple of questions that I would have at first. You mentioned that when the provider gets to about 80% that's the time to look that they need some, some other systems. And the question would be, how do you determine that versus just another provider?
2: So That's a good point. Um, can you hear me? So, so we, we do have a business office that looks and, and generally has to do with, with procedures and, and surgical volume. Um, and usually at that 80%, they're not 100% utilized in their surgical volume. So they still have room on their OR days to add more cases. Um, and it also has to do with the population that, that they serve, uh, whether they need an actual provider in the sense of a surgeon or an APC. That's how we divide that up. It's okay. mainly office utilization, not necessarily OR utilization.
1: And have you thought about even expanding to the operating room or the model is just sort of more of a office-based?
2: Well, we have. We're fortunate enough that um, in Houston, we are all clinical instructors at Baylor, so we have the residents who work with us in the OR, and they round with us. So. Um, it would be a little redundant, and I think um, our APCs would be better utilized in the office. But as we expand to different regions of Houston where we don't have resin access, I think that might be a consideration of having our, our APCs um, work with us in the OR. We also employ surgical assists at Kelsey Siebold. So, um, you know, again, it's it's a little bit of a complicated issue. I think one one thing you'll have to realize is
1: that Every state is different. Every state, and we'll talk about it in the scope of practice with Dr. Reynolds, but each state has rules and regulations of who can do what, um, how they're kind of utilized. So if anyone in the audience is thinking about it or kind of bringing that in their practice, the first part is to look at your state rules and regulations. Um, And they are different for the advanced uh, physician assistant. Rules are different than a uh, nurse practitioner.
2: How how long have you been doing? So I've been like working with. Uh, so I've been there for nine and a half years. When I started, we had five urologists and no APCs, um, and now, again, we are uh, eight urologists and six APCs. And the original five of us all have a one to one, and then our two new hires um, they're going to share that that new APC that we just hired with. Kind of the existing one, but eventually it'll all be at least a one-to-one, if not a two-to-one, APC to physician ratio.
1: And I think it's very interesting, and Shelly, I'd be interested in your comments here. Is that if you go out looking at opportunities from a APP perspective, you really have to look at different things. I, I consider it more like a baseball team. You know, you have the pitchers, the catchers, the outfielders, the infielders. Because if you're going to a large integrated system, in our world, we have APPs that only do inpatient. They, we have APPs that are on call. We have APPs that are only in the OR. There are APPs that are just in the office. And the skill sets, when you expand so much, can be subcategorized like subspecialty. I would kind of imagine that's probably at a large institution like Vanderbilt.
0: We have three subspecialties, so and they Maybe uh, three three for pelvic floor is what we have right now currently for five providers.
1: So I think it's getting so. to the area, and that's Dr. Reynolds will talk about it, is that when we have subspecialization, the providers now have opportunities of, you know, what do I like? Do I want to be a generalist? Do I want to be a subspecialist? Do I want to take a fellowship? I mean, these are great opportunities because they are kind of colleagues and working alongside to really optimize care for everyone.
0: Yeah, I think the patients enjoy it too. They feel like they've got a team support.
1: Right. And I know you're going to talk about the team support later. Well, Dr. Howard, I mean, Dr. Reynolds, can you tell us exactly about what you see some of the roles are with
3: things and some of the opportunities that they have? Sure. Um, Well, well, welcome everybody. Thanks for sticking it out to the the end. I'm just curious, are, are there any APPs out in the audience? Oh, good. Good, good, good. All right, we're going to hope you guys chime in um, as the day goes on. Um, and so, uh, so I work at Vanderbilt, as uh, as Dr. Canelli said. Um, and uh, Vanderbilt Urology's had in, uh, APPs for a while. Um, they predated when I when I got there. Um, and we were lucky to recruit Shelly to come on this panel because she was one of the original APPs um, at Vanderbilt and has always been specialized in. Um, in in FPM rest. Uh, And I was trying to count it up while I was sitting there. I think we have about 10 or 11 outpatient APPs. We have two inpatient direct uh, uh, for the urology service. We don't have any in the OR um, because we use residents and their first assists and all that kind of thing. Uh, but we basically have an outpatient uh, and we have um, it's 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 typically a one to one or a one to two uh, ratio in terms of what uh, how we're allocated apps, uh, and so I'm tempted to say that Shelly is my app, but the reality is I am Shelly's provider. She tells me what to do when I need to do it. So um, anyway, so I was tasked with talking a little bit about some of the uh, uh, utilization and uh, and some of the training just to kind of cover some of those bases. Um, I mean, this is the ideal, right? So the APP and the urologist or the provider practice at the top of their license and their training. Um, So the urologist, we should be doing things like operating and managing the complex patients. And the APP um, can be uh, working either in a general clinic, a subspecialty clinic helping with post-operative management, some situations rounding, um, and procedures. As we talked about surgical assists participating call. So, um, uh, the AUA has a white paper that just came out in the fall, uh, on, uh, uh, or the most recent version, on APPs. Um, and so, the, the official AUA uh, uh, position is that APPs should work in a closely formally defined alliance with the urologist who serve in a supervisory role. And that results in a physician-led, team-based approach. Um, and so the, the the model that they propose is the supervision collaboration model, which is also known as delegated autonomy. Um, and just like we've talked about, that's where an APP will work with one or more physicians uh, 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 within the scope of the practitioner's expertise, um, but they propose, and, and it should be a dynamic process. And kind of like what, uh, what, what Benji was talking about, with as they get up and running, they kind of can do more and more. Um, they're very specific. that The physician is still responsible for the overall care of the pa- of the patient, but it doesn't require that the supervising physician be present. Um, And then the hope is that as the the relationship evolves, that uh, the the duties and the the individual characteristics can uh, evolve as well. Um, But there's a lot of factors that go into it. You can see even just with our three groups, there's a lot of variation. uh, And it does depend on academic versus private practice law, size of the group, the experience, Um, physician comfort level. uh, That's an important one. And then, of course, state laws. there are state laws, and and, and uh, for nurse practitioners, for example, there are a number of states where the nurse practitioner can function independently and have their own shop. Um, there are additionally some where they have to be su- uh, supervised, uh, and then um, in the remaining there's a, more of a collaborative or a super, uh, supervisory role. Um, One thing just to make a comment. Mm-hmm. You want me to go back?
1: Looking at the state laws, between them because the nursing goes under the state of nursing in that situation. And, Shelley, you could sort of speak to this. For a nurse practitioner, unlike a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner must declare their subspecialty prior to proceeding into their study area. So just like when you went to university, you'd say, I'm going to go into uh, biology or chemistry. nursing, you can either go into sort of inpatient acute care, you can go into family practice, you can go into pediatrics, you can go to women's health. But that actually defines your practice. And what's tended to happen in these 22 states that have independent laws, they are making sure that the nurse practitioners just stay at that sort of certification that they have. Uh, some are being grandfathered in. In our state of North Carolina, we don't have an, it's not an independent practice state, but they're preparing for that. Because, for example, Shelley, what is your certification in?
0: Adult geriatric. Adult
1: geriatric, which which means you probably don't have the certification to do pediatrics.
0: Twelve and up, puberty.
1: And part of what that's going to come across is. To actually be in an academic facility where you're in the hospital, you have to have kind of the acute care, like bedside nursing ICU type care to be able to do that, such as being in the operating room and other things. So it's, it's very unique and something you need to pay attention to in the area. And that's different than physician assistants when they go in, just like as we go into medical school, we come out just with this generalized, and then we decide our sub-specialization. So the training is different, the, the process is different.
3: They're still both very good in, in the end. Um, there, there is AUA census data, which just came out, which shows a little bit about some of how APPs are functioning in the field of urology, and, and you can read the data as well as I can, um, in terms of practice setting um, areas of practice, ambulatory setting, inpatient, OR procedures, uh, and then non-clinical duty. Um, and I thought this was interesting. The primary practice focus, the vast majority are general without specialty, um, and you can see female pelvic medicine um, is at single digits uh, across the board, which is actually consistent with a lot of the other uh, subspecialties. Um, that same census data, interestingly. so. Most HPPs see about 40 to 80 patients per week, a median of 60, um, primarily seen in the clinic. Um, and you can see some of the additional duties that uh, that, that they that they do. Um, I have one slide on the training. Uh, Dr. Canelli brought it up. But um, we can see there that there, there are some, you know, the nurse practitioner is a nurse uh, who then goes on to additional training. And the, the programs are similar. Um, but there is some difference in the minimal clinical hours. But again, the nurse has baseline um, many more hours. Uh, so they're very similar, actually. Um, that's educational summary. Uh, and so one of our nurse practitioners at Vanderbilt, um, um, Gilbert, who helped provide some of these slides for me, has very, very been very interested in this. Um, and. Uh, in terms of how do you you, you train, APPS in urology, um, and the reality is is that most people get on the job training, uh, and you can see here that you know it takes there's some onboarding it takes time to be productive there's a lot of turnover and the turnover is costly so uh, it's important uh, that, that it, it's a good experience for everybody um, but what. What Gilbert has done is 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 created an AP uh, a nurse practitioner uh, fellowship uh, at Vanderbilt um, addressing this need. Um, And there there are now nine postgraduate training programs uh, for urology in the country. You can see them listed here. Um, uh, But then what Gil put together is this uh, fellowship that's been really successful for us. It's it's a year long. There's two. two six-month rotations. Um, the first half, the fellow is paired up with MD and APP uh, through the different areas in the, de- in the department. Um, and then the second half, they become more autonomous and they uh, start seeing some patients on their own, uh, increasing uh, skills and, and, and competency. And there's a didactic portion. Uh, and we've had three graduates today. We just start, we just hired, uh, enrolled the fourth person. Um, We've kept two of those graduates. We really wanted to keep the third one, but she had family reasons that couldn't stay. So it's a little bit of a self-serving thing where we're training these to to, to be our own. Um,
1: I I would tend to agree with that. At Carolina's Medical Center, we've had APP fellowships in multiple specialties for about 12 years. And originally, that was the kind of goal is that you offered that, they were with you for a year, we would rotate every six months, we'd get a new one, so we would have two on at a time. Um, And really, it affords the new APP kind of just, it's like a fellowship, so they get a taste of what it's like. They were getting exposure not only to inpatient, but also outpatient in the operating room, Um, and then seeing what talents or what things they enjoy and then allowing them to kind of go off. What we did at our institution was we would offer 80% of the going rate compensation. And then if they if we had openings and they stayed on, we would give them a bonus of 20% to kind of make them whole at the end of it. Um, but I would be interested in Shelley, one of the things happening right now is because everyone doesn't really want to extend their training because of you know, just the cost of education. Did you? Did you have any opportunities when you were going through to look for sort of fellowships? Um, what do you think of fellowships from the perspective? And have you seen your colleagues say, well, I'm just going to, you know, time to work?
0: Actually, what? So I started, there was no fellowships when I became a nurse practitioner. Um, I've been at Vanderbilt for 15 years, so that was a long time ago. Uh, at least that I know of, there wasn't. <clears throat> Uh, I, I've we've talked about doing this fellowship for a long time, and um, in the time I've been there, and since Gilbert came from a fellowship, that kind of got us encouraged even more to push forward with it. And he's done a fabulous job, and I really think it's been beneficial. Um, they are getting paid something, so uh, they have a little compensation during, I don't think it's quite 80%. I think it's not I don't think it's, well, I mean, it it may be close to 80%, I guess, Um, plus the benefits. They still get, you know, health insurance and all that. So, they're getting provided all that while they're with us. Um, And, you know, they get a taste of all the areas so they can kind of see where they would want to go in the subspecialty if that's what they want to do. They also can go into general urology after but like I said, I mean, it has been beneficial for us as a um, office anyway, just to train them for ourselves.
3: <laughs> do, do, do any of the apps out there do a fellowship? Someone's coming to yeah, do yeah. so sure. yeah, please do. Um, so
4: I'm um, Jessica Nelson. I'm one of the um, PAs at UT Southwestern. Um, I actually was there when Benji um, trained with us. So. I've been there since 2010, and in 2011, we started the fellowship, and it is set up, I mean, just like y'all's, basically the six-month and then the other six-month, and we also hired about half of the PAs that have come through the fellowship, um, and they do get paid sort of like what a resident would get paid, um, and they, the way we work in our practice, we're all pretty general, um, and we're not paired up with one specific physician, although um we do get to sort of pick what we enjoy seeing, and there's 10 of us, um, PAs. We have a nurse practitioner in the hospital with the residents helping with consults and floor work. Um, we're in clinic, and we first assist in the operating room. So um, I think there's a lot of job satisfaction that comes with doing a whole lot of things that we really appreciate. We do a lot of procedures in the clinic. Um, And so I don't know if anyone has any other questions about that, but I kind of snuck right in and sort of did a fellowship without doing a fellowship because they kind of onboarded me in sort of the same way, maybe a little bit quicker. Um, So just got the normal salary at first, you know.
1: But one of the nice things about the fellowship, I would say, is it affords opportunities to learn procedures because just similar to like your program, they're really on a rotational basis with the residents, with the... The providers. So, when they're in the operating room, sort of learning cystoscopy or learning transrectal ultrasound. So, because they're also more hospital employed, they, the delineation of privileges is different. They have to be credentialed just like anyone to do, pri- to do procedures. And that affords them sort of supervision to then be able to do it in the outpatient. That's something different. You know, Benji in the office for a, it's really up to the supervising physician to check off and say they're qualified and ready to go. But in a hospital setting, that's totally different. And then we're working with what is the proper number that you have to do to just be credentialed. What is then your ongoing do you need to do every two years? And then the next question we're dealing with is can APPs sign off on other APPs being training? Because your program has been going on for quite some time like ours. It's hard it, there's at some point in time that the provider, the supervising provider, doesn't do that procedure anymore because it's done by, the yeah, skill right. set is really done by the APP.
2: Right. I will say in, in the private practice world, training a APC, even though I said that at about six weeks they're up and running on their own, but it, it takes at least six months to get an APP integrated into your practice fully, and even then, probably another six months after that until they can function independently. And that was one of the big struggles we had as we started bringing them on board was um, not everybody wanted to spend the time to train an APC. Um, a lot of my partners didn't know how to use them. As Jessica said, I was fortunate enough to learn how to work with an APC as part of the team in my fellowship. Um, so I had to you know, kind of work with my partners and train them how to use an APC and then we gradually started hiring um, a significant volume. And now our, our APCs do the bulk of the training um, with the new APCs, which I think is, is super helpful. Um, and frankly, they're probably better teachers and have more time than, than we do to to spend.
1: We'll take a question over here and then over here.
3: So, so I have a question about um, the fellowship or training. Um, I have a nurse practitioner who um, is trained, but for nurse practitioners, they can get um, – uh, CMEs um, go into courses, things like that, um, that they have to renew all the time. Um, for a PA, does that exist the same way? And um, if it is a fellowship, I do you have defined milestones or uh, testing for medical knowledge, things like that? Similar, like a residency, where they can actually graduate and have been, having met
1: these milestones in the fellowship. So those are good questions. In regards to sort of milestones, I think because it's still in development, that's ultimately probably where they're going to be going and heading because at least the way that we're treating it is similar to like a residency program. The challenge is it's only one year. So it's hard. Milestones are really throughout a long period of time. So that may be difficult. But they do have certain criteria that have to be met uh, targets within that year. In regards to your question about physician assistants, um, they do same, similar have to meet CME or CEU requirements. The difficulty for a physician assistant is that when they go back to get recertified, they have to be recertified on general PA, the whole breadth of everything. And so if you're just a urology physician assistant, you have to make go back and learn medicine and diabetes and the breath, which is challenging. And that's why the model within nurse practitioners they choose their subspecialization at first, and then that's the only thing that you're responsible for. Yeah. Question.
5: So, I think you you answered kind of my my question. What's what's the process for the APP to get the uh, the privilege doing the officer procedure, and uh, is there any restriction for? a specific procedure, I know like some MP or IPP, they do PN in, the, in the clinic. Uh, is it like an institution, state regulation? Or-
1: so it depends on the where you're practicing. If it's just an outpatient setting, the supervising physician is then the one that is ultimately responsible and has to make sure that they're doing it appropriately um, because ultimately they're still taking on that risk. In the hospital setting, it goes back to the medical staff office. And the medical staff office will delineate their privileges. And usually it then will go to the department. If it's in urology, the department of urology and the chair will have to come up with what is appropriate. Then it gets transferred to the credentials committee. And usually it's within the specialty of your department to kind of decide what is appropriate and what is sort of standard for that location. But there's no standard. Um, Within the Society of Urologic Nursing, they do have programs to try to teach and educate. I know they do things on cystoscopy. They don't give a certification, but they do have at least a formal curriculum that gets people sort of trained in that area. And the the AUA is also involved in that, trying to get procedural-based training to get them at least the skills. Hi, uh, my name is James. I am a uh, graduate of the
6: UT Southwestern Urology Fellowship. And uh, in in regards to this gentleman's uh, question about um, uh, fellowship certifications, I think there's currently a process ongoing to have PA fellowships being certified. Uh, now, to my knowledge, uh, a great majority of the programs that were on your screen and your slide, uh, most of them probably aren't. Ours isn't formally certified. And uh, I think that's mostly because there is no benefit to being certified. Nothing happens. Um, We we still get to function even without that certification. Um, Now, my own question to the panel is, is there a, um, between your respective institutions, is there a triage process by which you try to limit or filter which kind of patients uh, fall into the, Provider, uh, the physician providers uh, clinic versus your PAs, uh, is it new versus established complexity or you know suspicion for surgical needs, uh, anything like that? And
1: I will go down the line and
0: so uh, we are we do have a grid that our call center is supposed to be following, and so each nurse practitioner or PA has their. List of diagnoses that they'll see, and it usually falls into their subspecialty. Um, so that way, you know, hopefully, they're seeing the type of patient that maybe a potential surgery candidate for our our the supervising physician. So it's like feeding them the cases, um, but they start usually with us. Uh, so we see new patients and returns.
3: Um, but it is it, it, it's intentional uh so like if it is something that's gonna be a higher complexity, then that usually will go to the uh to the physician so um you know like like in in our uh uh in our division, it would be you know, someone who comes in with you know uh yeah fistulas or you know neurogenic bladder or complicated things like that are gonna be more likely to put in with the with the physician than with the n p um and, then, but, uh, and uh, we also have, you know, the, the APP see a lot of the post-op patients um, uh, and, and things like that uh, as well. Um, but there's some differences in, uh, or special situations. And so, like, we have a multidisciplinary IC clinic. Uh, and so, all the patients with IC and bladder pain, triaged into there. Shelly's in charge of that clinic and then they kind of get evaluated, worked up. If they need then some other higher care, then they get spit back out to us. So we,
2: our call center does not have the ability to put patients on our APC schedules, but we also have a centralized scheduling within the urology department where we get internal referrals from PCPs and, and so on and so forth. And the nurses will pick up those referrals and place them on the APC schedule based on their fund of knowledge, um, the condition, how long they've been uh, working with us, and what they're capable of handling. Um, And patients cannot schedule themselves on an APP schedule, whereas they can do online scheduling for an MD. And what
1: we've done at our institution is, certainly within female pelvic medicine, basically go down the list of sort of diseases or syndromes that we have. And we check off where they should go. The other part is to making sure that the APP feels very comfortable in handling and being the initial one. Uh, If someone comes in with, as mentioned, like a vescovaginal fistula that needs a surgical procedure right away, there's no sense in going right directly to the APP. Kind of bringing that, you know it's a surgical uh, condition that needs to be treated. The other thing that we do is in our area, if people are traveling a long distance, or if they've already seen another urologist and the urologists is referring in and they're traveling, the APPs don't really want to, they're like, oh my gosh, why are they seeing me? So they feel that this may be more complex. They feel it may be inappropriate. And what happens, and Shelly might talk to it, is that when the traveling patient comes in they're frustrated because they want to be fixed. They figure they're going to be fixed on one visit, and that's not really the case. I'm sure you've run into that situation. Yes. Question.
7: I have a comment and a question. Uh, The comment I want to make is I want to share my personal experience with four-plus years training my own three APPs. Um, I agree with the obstacles when you uh, want to train them and can be cost-inefficient or ineffective, but I found the resolution to that is to hire new graduates as opposed to skilled or urology-trained APPs, A, because you want to tailor them to your own practice. And B, there would be a cheaper labor because obviously that auto graduation and the benchmark for urology APPs increased with the experience. And C, they would grow with me and they become more loyal to me and my practice and follow the same algorithm and protocol. And my patients been really superly satisfied with this experience so far. That's one comment on me. The second is, um, in addition to the clinical duties been listed, I think they are a great resource for research activities. And I, my all APPs are published in abstracts and papers, and I think that's something we can definitely invest in them. And that's something I think would empower APPs also, and they, they feel more the team relationship, and um, and they can be um, you know a great asset in that area. The question I have is, Have you figured out the best way of billing efficiency? Would you rather have them run their own clinic and bill their own and then you share the RBUs as a team or would you rather co-sign what they do and bill under your name and in that case, you have to deal with the inefficiency of your practice and also the fact that the billing will be compromised and you have to see every single patient that they see. Thank you.
1: So we'll get more of the private practice view on the billing from the office.
2: um, So the billing can be challenging. Um, Again, I'm fortunate enough I work for a big organization. But the way we do things within the department is uh, the, the physicians actually don't get any of the RVUs that the PAC. It does work that way in some other departments, but what we do is we pay our physicians a pretty generous supervisory stipend for overseeing a PA. And that comes with a little bit of a hook. Um, Every new patient that the PA sees that you supervise, um, the chart gets routed to you, and we, our BI team, has built a, a form within EPIC where within 24 hours it gets routed to a physician and they just look at the chart, check on it, and say I agree and co-manage this patient with the APC. Um, so that's what we've done. And when, as I mentioned, when they see their own patients, they just know supervision um, and and the clinic, you know, bills at a little bit of a reduced rate. Um, it, it seems to work well because what we find is if you don't have that, um, people can game the system. Again, this is it's just the way that our compensation model works, but, if you inundate a provider' schedule with patients and they have seventy patients in the course of a day, you know I, I would argue what type of care are they' getting if they're flying in and out and APC is really doing the bulk of their work. Um, you might as well put the patients on the APC schedule and let them give the time to the patient that that they need. So for us, it's also a little bit of quality over quantity, uh, so that's how we manage it. and I think. The compensation and what's the best
1: and optimal is really so unique to each individual location, how your practice style is set up. And there's many different ways that are out there, um, just as within physician compensations. And I think it's going to continually evolve uh, to be where things are at. Your other question about research, I think it's very good. In, In the physician assistant world, they really don't have any hierarchy of advanced training. There's no certification beyond that. Within nurse practitioners, they can continue to go on and become doctorates and have a doctorate degree of nursing. And that degree is really a teaching degree to be able to help and train and teach others to do that. But it takes, you know, you're going to get your thesis and everything.
8: Brian? So good. Yeah, I mean, we've we've been doing this for a long time. Um, And we actually, we have a, certified program for our radiology PAs now. Um, from the experience, I think the big thing for doing this I've learned over time is much like residents, the advanced practitioners all have different skill sets. So not everybody's going to be able to learn how to do everything. So you have to be willing to you know, tell people, maybe you shouldn't do cystoscopies or ultrasound biopsies and, and figure out where they fit into it. I think that's key. Um, in my other life, I am the head of Urologic Review for the state of New York, and I'm also now on the AMA's committee looking at this. So there's probably going to be more independent practice of both physicians' assistants. New York is looking at advancing nurse practitioner. And so what's coming up, too, is what's going to happen with independent practice. And from the standpoint of hospital systems, we hate to say this, but with a shortage of urologists or other specialists and some companies like Optima and things coming into the healthcare world people are worried about what happens with that so there's a, the question is is you know how do we standardize some of this training too so that our fellowship trained people in that can continue to practice and then what happens people start practicing independently is this going to be an issue down the road um and i think you know it's something we we need to think about just because the ama is thinking about it right now um certainly there's a bill in front of the new york state senate that's that's looking at it so um you know having these formalized standards is really a key thing i think people have done a great job the aua's done a good job of getting it going so we just need to kind of keep it moving forward correct
9: Hi, i Cannon-Smith in Dallas-Fort Worth area um, in private practice, but uh, I've been working with PAs for over 10 years, currently have two looking for a third, um, but basically paid for a PA out of my own salary, and I wanted it that way I left in my previous practice because I didn't get any of the compensation from her hard to work. Um, I want it that way um, but but the thing that i 've learned about p you know the p a s and um, working with nurse practitioners is each one is different in in private practice, and i I kind of let them develop how they how they want to develop that. Um, how they want to practice within my practice and develop that. Some want to go to the OR, some don't want to go to the OR. And so it's, it's not like a one-stop shop if you're trying to develop a program of, you know, I, I really want them to develop in the ways that they want to develop within my practice of female pelvic medicine. So I have some that do everything and some that go to the OR, and it, and it's really variable and I like it that way because then they're they're growing right along with me. So um, I think that's an important heart when you're bringing these people along with you that it's not like this is the program you must conform to it because I find when you do that that's when they leave um they're not very loyal so keeping it open um and and (laughs) and working with them and I have one that has been with me 10 years and she's fantastic and I love it when she outbills some of my gender urology partners so I'm happy with it
5: how do you handle um patients who say well, I made an appointment to be seen by a doctor, so I only want to be seen by a doctor. Um, and this is partially for new patients. Um, I always see the new patients. I don't have uh, the PA that I work with, see any patients independently for news. But sometimes patients will say, well, I don't want to tell you my history. I'm going. I'm here to see the doctor. And also for follow-ups. I have a handful of pessary patients who say, I like how Dr. Pollen takes out my pessary, so that's who I want to have manage my pessary, which isn't really a good use of my time.
1: Shelley, what... <laughs>
0: Well, the pessaries, we don't give them a choice. So they start with me and they stay with me uh, most of the time. The Occasionally, the nurses may assist them if, like, we're here and they need a change or cleaning or something, but most of the time it's myself. So we don't, the patients don't get the choice there. So if they're in his clinic and he needs the pessary fitted, then, they, then I come and fit the pessary. So when that's our side-by-side clinic. Um, and then they'll just follow up with me after that, unless they're going to come back for urodynamics or something like that, potentially surgery. If it's just the crutch. Uh, the patients that I go in on his schedule, uh, the new patients, they sometimes have said that to me. They, well, I'm here to see Dr. Reynolds. I'm not here to see you. And I'm like, yes, and I'm here to help Dr. Reynolds. And so I'm going to take your history, and we're going to get this Visit it started, because Dr. Reynolds is in a procedure right now, so he'll be in shortly, and we'll do the exam together, or something like that. So then that's when I might grab him to do the exam. So, okay, now you come and meet him, and then they feel like they're touched by him, and (laughs) the magic's gone, and we can move on with the appointment.
3: (laughs) Yeah, so we we tag team him. I mean, you can kind of get a sense, and then um, we sort of do the bait and switch kind of thing, like, oh yeah, and then like, okay, I, I walk out early or something. We kind of have a little shtick to kind of try to get around that. I mean, there's some people that are adamant and then, you know, it, it's hard. You can
7: maybe So part of
3: it them. is
1: you have to create a culture of a team. Mm-hmm. And the team-based culture always, it's we together. It's not individual. And I think what's happening in programs, the reason why in your program, when you're in clinic, you want them with you side by side because it affords the opportunity that, you will meet the same patient back and forth as a team. They can still run independent, you know, clinics and independent patients, but the patient needs to know
2: they're cared by a team. And, uh, and so you, you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, with that that patient, I would I would probably go see the patient and say, you know, I know you didn't really want to see my PA. To start with, you have to understand that, you know, care for you is provided by my nurse, my MA, and my PA. And to maximize your care, you're going to have to be comfortable with seeing Kristen, who is my right-hand woman and knows if just as much, if not more, um, urology and female urology. And, and you have to trust us as a team. And usually, you know, they end up seeing the PA more often than me. But to your point also,
1: if they say to the APP, I want to see the the doctor. Some of it's cultural, some of it's generational. Of course you're going to do that because it puts the APP in a bad situation. Remember your APP is your partner. You have got to stick up for your partners. You stick up for your staff and you can't just put them out to dry. You want them to be in a position where they're comfortable, they're confident and so in doing so you, the provider has to step in and say this is our philosophy here. We as a team, this practice, this is what we do. We're here to treat you.
10: Yep. As a segue to what she just asked, I, uh, I I monitor about four, sometimes five PAs at a, at a time. And, and uh, um, I'm interested, interested to hear what your strategy is for seeing patients in the parallel clinic that you talked about. Um, I have a lot of issues with my administration trying to get them to see the, the benefit of that as a team because they would rather have them just doing a, their own clinic and pumping out their own work reviews. But that being said, um, what sort of strategy do you take? You said you 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 run a clinic, and they have do they have their own list of patients they're seeing with you, or do they um, do they see have the same list of patients, and you kind of pick and choose? How does that work
2: um, from that standpoint? So I, I have my own schedule, and then she will have so typically a, a template for one of our APCs. They'll see between fifteen and twenty patients a day when they're on their own. When they're with me in clinic, usually it's six to eight. So roughly 50% of their overall template. And they're not new patients. So they, unless it's an emergency or walk-in, those are all established follow-up patients to the department or the clinic. Usually they're my patients. Um, And then my schedule will have all sorts of procedures and new patients. Um, And it's just a way to maximize maximize the efficiency and throughput of our patients, and I could easily take an established patient off my schedule and work in a more complicated surgical-based patient. Um, their own list of patients, the same time as your patients, but you're in
10: the same clinic. Now, one of the other things that I've been trying to figure out is uh, how to cut down on documentation issues that we all deal with. And um, I tried a scribe last year. It didn't work out very well. Um, and I was wondering how, if there's any strategy for the APP to help with the documentation, Sure, of them just seeing six patients a day and then document, documenting on, on their own patients. Do you use them in any way to somehow scribe for your, uh, for your own patients uh, to help with that offloading of things?
2: So I, I don't. I mean, I, I feel very adamant um, my APC is not working at the top of her skill set if she's acting as a scribe. Um, I personally pre-chart a lot of my own clinics. Yeah. Um, and if I'm out of town or she gets to it, she'll pre-chart the clinics too. Um, but it, it really is, it's a partnership. Um, we really work in tandem.
1: There's new rules and regulations. regarding split shared visits. Right. Uh, tomorrow right. they're going to talk about coding. and I'm sure they'll talk about some of that issue, and I can talk to you later on it. One other thing we've done in trying to do that is make that clinic that they're at is the pre-op and post-op. Yeah. So they're seeing things that you will naturally socially go in to see them, but they're taking care of things, and it just parallels your clinic time. And then when you're in the operating room, that's the time that they can utilize seeing their own individual patients or procedures that they would do without you needing to be there.
10: Well, third question is, if they're seeing six to eight patients in a day while you're seeing your 30 or 40, um, what what else are they doing in the day,
2: just following you around, or how does that work? So that she'll generally go in and start and start the, to see the new patients. She'll get a history, um, and then I'll usually do the exam and formulate the assessment plan.
10: I see. So you don't use your nurses or MAs to get that history. You use the APP to do it. Right. I get you.
1: So they're doing a team-based concept, and your model, what it sounds like, is they just the administration wants them to run an independent right clinic. They're on their own. Right,
2: right, right. And all of my partners do that. It's, we, we found it to be the most efficient model for the way that we – Practice
10: okay, All right? Thanks. Yes,
5: hi, my name is Gretchen. I'm a nurse practitioner in Mayo Clinic Health System in Minnesota. So, we're an independent practice, practice state, so that means if I wanted to, I could go open my own clinic somewhere. I don't want to, but I could. Um, it's myself and one surgeon, and so we've divided things very carefully about who prefers what. So I prefer the interstitial cystitis, overactive bladder, erectile dysfunction, all that stuff. He does most of the prostate cancer, all of the bladder cancer, unless it's one that I happen to find on a cysto. Um, so we're just, we're very generalized. My question about SUFU and everything, this is my second SUFU conference, and this is the first time that anything about NPs or NPAs has come up. What are those plans as an organization going forward about how we're going to incorporate NPPAs in the
3: conference? I, I don't know if I can f- officially answer that kind of question, but I think there is a lot of interest. Um, and so uh, it is something that comes up when we look at the attendees that come to the meeting. We've tried to make some adjustments from a board level. For example, dropping the cost uh, for the meeting for uh, for APPs. And, and Ultimately, the goal is to try to get more APPs to attend the conference. And then um, we also have to figure out how to provide content and opportunities that work for what what you all need. Uh, And so um, I I think the answer is, I think there's going to be a lot more that's going to happen.
1: The other thing I would, if you're not aware of it, through the AUA, you know, there are APP memberships there's also, at every AUA now, we have a full day dedicated for APPs, sort of networking, training APPs, to really draw the full breadth of knowledge within general urology. Um, we have yet not focused in on just the breadth of female pelvic medicine, although that's obviously something that we need, we need to do. But if you've not been exposed to the AUA, look at that. I think it's, it's going to be on a Saturday, a full day, and it's a, it's a great curriculum.
5: It's more difficult to join the physician-led organizations. It's a much—it's a very arduous application process to prove that we're worthy to be part of the of the organization.
1: Well, you're definitely worthy for Sufu. In fact, we do have APP <laughs> memberships. You—I'll be more than happy to chat with you afterwards. It's basically uh, two letters of recommendation is really what's needed, and. Obviously, you have a supervising physician who that's one right there, and I'll be happy to talk to you and be your second.
5: Thank you. Hello. Okay,
11: there it's working. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm a PA at UCSD Urology, and I just want to thank you guys for putting on this amazing breakout session, first of all. It's... I've definitely taken a lot of pearls and perspectives for my own practice and for my own institution, but then also just being in an environment where there's such a welcome for APPs is really incredible. So thank you. Uh, My question is related to anticipation of volume when you add an APP. So I feel that um, many institutions or practices kind of wait until they're already in crisis before they decide to add somebody new. And I love the idea of picking a threshold and saying, this is when we should, because not only that, but the, the this way the supervising physician is also not so strained that they don't have the time to put in to really train and develop that relationship. But how do you think about guaranteeing getting from that threshold to the increase in volume, being able to pay for that APP salary? Is there something that you do that is organic? That's part one. Or is there something that you do for marketing? Or is it just organic growth? That's part one. And part two is, then in that process, do you see a decrease in volume for the supervising physician, and does that cause any conflict?
2: So I'll answer the second question first. Is we don't see a decrease in volume. It's actually the opposite. We see an increase in volume. Um, the, the throughput for our patients is much better. As far as, you know, again, um, you know, uh, we're outside a little bit of private practice. Again, we are 600 physicians. We have a business office that does a lot of business intelligence and population metrics, which knows how many providers we have, and I think um, before we would add um, another provider, we we base our number of providers based on the population that we serve, and then once their schedule is full, that 70 to 80 percent utilization, then we add on an APC, and then we would add on, you know, another APC for that other urologist, and once they're one-to-one and we're still falling behind... Um, in the sense that patients are waiting more than two weeks to get in, then we would start to look at adding another provider. But the APC provides a wonderful opportunity for access for our patients. Um, and that's kind of what, what we utilize them for. Thank you. Well, I'd like to
1: thank the faculty and the panel and the audience for staying. Um, we certainly appreciate the teamwork, the bonding together that we do all have as providers trying to help our patients. And this will conclude the session. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode on the SuFu Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter with our handle at SuFuOrg, where we'll provide real-time updates of our next podcast episode launch. And be sure to check us out on our website, www.sufuorg.com.